0: Theatre has long helped to break barriers and build community. Queen's Theatre is a great example of that. It's been training deaf and disabled theatre professionals for years. Their services have become that much more important at this very moment as people with disabilities grapple with significant job losses due to the pandemic. I'm George Boldarki and this is Cityscape. As cultural institutions continue to reopen and with Broadway and Off-Broadway making a return, Queen's Theatre recently hosted two weeks of workshops to build skills, knowledge, and confidence to support participants. Our guests this week are Greg Mosgala, who leads the Theatre for All programming at Queen's Theatre, and Alejandra Ospina, one of the first graduates of the program. They're with us to talk about the challenges those with disabilities face, how the pandemic has impacted them, and how the Theatre for All program is working to affect changes in the larger industry. Greg, welcome to Cityscape. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Alejandra, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. So Greg, let's start with you. Talk to us about this program
1: and why Queen's Theatre launched it. Sure, well, the program is called Theatre for All, or TFA. And it was an initiative that was uh, originally first started around 2016, 2017, Uh, Queen's Theatre begin to have internal conversations, reexamining their mission, their values, all of that, and they realized that they were being um, they're not paying enough attention to deaf and disabled populations throughout New York. Uh, their mission essentially is to provide the high, highest quality art for the most people possible um, throughout the borough of Queens, New York City and uh, and the world. Um, so Um, They realized if disability is roughly 20, 25% of the population, you know, they have not been putting their attention uh, to those folks and were a bit remiss in their mission. So uh, kind of from the top down, from the executive director down, they decided to make an institutional-wide change to address that um, and mitigate that. So TFA became the initiative to... uh, become more inclusive of uh, deaf and disabled communities. And the program is essentially two prongs. It's, it's programmatic things like plays and uh, things you would see in a performing arts center, but also a training program, uh, which we're talking about uh, mostly here today because Queen's Theatre took the approach of looking at things holistically. If people can, if people can get in our doors, that's great. if we're structurally accessible, that's great. But if people don't see themselves reflected on their stages and in our performance, then that's an issue. And there are huge systemic barriers to participation for deaf and disabled people in the cultural sector and all aspects of the theatre. So, The development of the training program was a way to start to mitigate that Um, and the first thing they did was create an advisory panel uh, which is an integrated group of individuals uh, from across the country um, who have backgrounds in theater the cultural sector academia uh, and the like so um, there's a maxim within the community nothing about us without us and so queen's theater wanted to honor that you know, by getting buy-in and creating a seat at the table from members of the community themselves.
0: Alejandra, what's your
1: background?
2: Well, my background is that I was born in Long Island City, Queens. So, I I grew up in Queens. Um, I had the interesting good fortune to be involved in the world of integrated children's theater as a very young person, and I participated in a theater company called the Fearless Theater Company when I was in my early and late teens. And at that time in the mid-90s, we had a somewhat related goal to create programming created by and for young people with disabilities to tell their stories. And my involvement in that came out of what I like to call my star turn, the peak of my performing career, when I performed with Itzhak Proman at Lincoln Center, when I was 12 years old, there was a children's uh, production uh, in conjunction with young musicians at the Juilliard School, and it was a children's musical called Claire's Broom Detective Agency, The Mystery of the Missing Violin. And at that time, I played the starring role of a young wheelchair-using detective who rallied her troops as a young detective to find a missing violin for Itzhak Perlman's character who was coincidentally also a world-renowned violinist. So that was sort of my my, you know, very intensive introduction into the world of theater. Um, I later attended a performing arts high school and focused on vocal music but from that point through to literally my late 20s, I didn't have many opportunities to continue to pursue theater work until I found out that TFA existed. And that's how I ended up becoming a member of the inaugural cohort in November of 2018. And that really jumpstarted all of my theatrical ambitions all at once.
1: Full disclosure, Alejandra and I have known each other for quite some time before the association with Queen's Theatre. And I remember sitting in the audience with you, Alejandra, at a a show at Henry Street Settlement years ago, and you talking to me about wanting to reignite your, you know, your acting career. And, and, you know, it was always like, where are the opportunities? Where are the opportunities? And it was always sort of this question, um, again. So, and I think it's important to know what Queen's Theatre did was really create a space, right, programmatically. Right for the community to gather. Because I think that's one thing people don't understand about deaf and disabled communities either. We don't commune on a regular basis. You know, yeah. there's a big term disability community, but I wasn't very aware of it growing up. Um, I always had to leave my sort of local community to go be with other disabled people. Um, and that was true even in uh, when I started acting professionally in New York. I, the only opportunities for me to act were through, I had to separate myself from Kind of the, the regular theater field or, you know, the, the people I had been integrated with and working with um, to go be with uh, in disability specific theater. And that kind of, that separation was not reflective of my experience, you know, and not, um, it just it kind of drew this invisible line. So I think just in my own, uh, from, you know, my own personal desire, my own personal mission, if you will, and then meeting up with Queen's Theater and saying, well, no, actually, There's a place for you here you know we're going to incorporate you into our all of our larger structures and larger systems um, i think is really really it's innovative and in a way revolutionary because i can't think of another organization um, in new york city or uh, throughout the country really that is really trying to look at it uh, this rigorously and this holistically
2: it reminds me of an interesting sort of microcosm as a new yorker i grew up in queens And when you grow up in any of the so-called outer boroughs, the idea is that if you're gonna do anything that's important, you have to do it in Manhattan. So I did everything I could with the resources I had as a low-income disabled young adult to move to Manhattan. Just that little microcosm, well, you have to be in the city if you're gonna do anything. So I was, I was in the city and I remember being with you now that you mentioned I have a terrible memory but now that you brought it up I remember being with you in that audience at Henry Street and saying those things to you and you saying to me that something was being worked on that you were working on something because you separately were doing your own related work um but we didn't know that it would turn into this and the fact that it meant that although getting to the Queen's Theatre isn't always easy on mass transit excessively. The fact that it meant that I got to go back to Queen's, back to that park, back to that beautiful space, back to that theatre, to do theatre work and to learn and to train in a way that was so seriously taken and had nothing to do with the hollowed halls of... You know, the Broadway theaters or Lincoln Center, you know, we can do these things in Queens, it made me miss Queens and rekindle my the love side of my love hate relationship with being from Queens. And I love that aspect of it in particular, um, because New York is in itself so many different worlds and not everything that's good has to be in the quote-unquote city. So,
0: Greg, what's involved specifically with Theatre for All and what you provide participants?
1: Well, we've been been developing the program and kind of uh, adapting it, uh, improving it uh, as we've been learning. So, uh, you know, we've been learning experientially as we go, because as I said, no one was really uh, endeavoring to do this work. So, I feel we're taking a really experimental, experiential model to say, you know, what happens? because we accept the full spectrum of disability, right? Uh, physical, mobility, sensory, behavioral, invisible disabilities. Um, again, it's called theater for all. So, um, you know, so what happens when you get somebody, you know, people in wheelchairs who are blind, low vision, who, have, who are on the autism spectrum and put them in a movement class or a voice and speech class, like how do you coordinate all of that, you know? So, um, and we've been really figuring that out year by year by year, and we have a fantastic, uh, staff and cohort of teaching artists that we uh, and our advisory panel, panel as well that i mentioned but the class is essentially it's two weeks it's an intensive right and you basically get what you would at any normal um, conservatory based type training so that could be movement voice and speech uh, scene work text work script analysis um you know we don't have it this year but we're thinking of integrating stage combat you know um so again it is we call it a professional acting training you know and even though we accept everyone at every level of their career um uh this year we've broken it up into three sections of kind of entry level early career and professional working actor right so we can make spaces for Uh, all those people at different levels of, you know, their experience or where they are, Um, whether they have just come to acting um, or have very little experience, maybe from a community theater perspective, or are getting guest starring roles in in major series, you know, uh, and working in movies, film, and television. Um, So, but that's our goal. And it's as much for the students, I think, uh, that participate and for the teaching artists, right, to learn Kind of how to develop, uh, codify, and disseminate inclusive pedagogy, um, because again, there aren't a lot. Of, we wouldn't need to create this program. There aren't a lot of uh, professional disabled actors who have gone through professional training programs or conservative training programs, um, because because I've, and I've been told flat out uh, by heads of programs, yes, we've auditioned them, but we didn't know, we haven't accepted them because we don't know how to work with them, hmm. and that is. In 2021, that is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, So again, but what we can do is serve as uh, kind of the laboratory and the, uh, we can gather that information and hope to share it more broadly with the field. Uh, So we are building those models as we go. I love what Alejandra said about Queens, you know, and why that is the focal point. If you don't know Queens Theater, it is housed within the site of the 1964 world's fair you know a monument dedicated to the promise of the future you know and i really think the future is where you build it you know so that is really what we're what we're trying to do and i think that is what is really exciting about the
2: work that we're doing
1: and have been allowed to do there
2: the focus on pre-professional and professional training is what lit a fire under me because there are theater-based programs for disabled people in the metro area, but they're very often sort of social theater and recreational theater or performance, which is completely valid and important. But that's not what I wanted this to be if I was going to participate. And the level of instruction and the fact that that high level of instruction is provided in large part by also working disabled actors and instructors it's been so important to keep coming back just you know the first time around as a participant and you know now it'll be two times around as a supporting staff that's what's been so important about it
0: what are among the main things that you took away from the program when you went through it, Alejandra
2: uh well there was exhaustion which I appreciated because again it was a rigorous intensive program um You know, I had to dive right in and take different classes on acting for camera and, you know, deconstructing scripts, the kinds of things that I didn't get to do as a sort of sometimes child actor in sort of social theater, Um, just learning all the things that you would learn if you'd gone to acting school for two and a half years or, you know, it it was just really very condensed, very fast paced. You learn about auditioning. You know, I, I got to prepare songs in a musical theater class, which the kinds of stuff I hadn't touched since I was 16 years old. So it was really every day, get up, you know, take your hour and a half trip out to the theater and just work all day long. And that's what I wanted, and that's what I got.
0: This is a question for both of you, but what have been your biggest frustrations as performers when it comes to stigma and bias?
2: It's changing. I mean, I think in the last 5, 10 years, there's been a lot of change, in part because of programs like ours and, and lots of other initiatives, and lots of pushback from folks who are working. But... The expectation growing up, you know even being a someone who worked in children 's theater and someone who went to a performing arts high school, and you know the expectation was, yes, I can do this, I can be involved in this, but don 't expect to get too much further than that because they 're not going to cast you you 're not who they want you know they're and even now i mean it 's still a problem you can expect that a a film or a play or anything that requires a character that is stated to be a disabled character, you're still less likely to be cast in that role over a non-disabled actor playing a disabled character. That's still a real problem. But when I was a teenager and a young adult, the expectation was, again, that I would only get so far with my training because I was much less likely to be cast, to be understood, to be the demographic that those directors wanted. So that's still something that we're fighting. Um, The frustrations that exist now are just getting folks who are responsible for these decision-making processes to understand that accessibility is a need. I'm a wheelchair user. I need to be able to get into the space where you're auditioning, where you're rehearsing, where you're taping. My friend is blind and visually impaired. They need to be able to read the scripts that you're sending in an accessible format with a screen reader or a braille display. My acquaintance is deaf or hard of hearing. You need to have interpreting services available. So these are just the very basic minimums that people with disabilities have been fighting to receive across society for 30 years and longer since the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So we're just trying to get an entire industry to reach a baseline level of legality, um, so to speak. But as I said, there's a lot more conversation, there's a lot more awareness And there's a lot more of folks not letting these things be the status quo anymore, which I'm happy to see now that I'm 40, but didn't imagine when I was 18, 20, you know?
1: Greg, what has been your experience? I mean, I echo a lot of the same things that uh, Alejandra has mentioned, but I think, you know, in the field specifically, there's a lot of conversation, as there should be, about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Um, Oftentimes, access doesn't make that doesn't make it into that conversation disability doesn't make it into those conversations right although even though it you know we have uh, a mutual friend who says that uh, you know the d in disability disability should lead diversity conversations right it is the d in diversity right if you want to say that so but again there's a lot of again i understand at some point because for many reasons systemic uh, reasons of institutionalization uh, being put away, you know, just disabled people haven't been present in uh, norm, quote unquote normal life for a long time, even though we're all here. We've always been here since the dawn of time. We're incredibly integrated in society. Um, but we, um, the hope is that we can uh, start to, yes, start to raise our voices in whatever way we can do that and make our presence known and say, carve out a space for us. You know, I totally, um, think, and that I think that's what we're trying to do at Queens theater and and beyond all of us have to wear multiple hats. This is true from people who are from any kind of marginalized population, right? Um, kind of the, the stress and the exhaustion of having to be an advocate on top of, uh, just trying to be an artist or or a theater professional in, in the world. Um, and people just, uh, there isn't a lot of thoughtful consideration into it. So we are really trying to inject ourselves into the conversation. And in my mind, that is done, most people think of access as kind of just structural brick and mortar access. Like access just means ramps. People don't think about what the what that ramp might enable, that there's a human being or human beings that use that ramp, do you know, and can participate right, in, in in the arts, in all aspects of society, right, but we're talking about specifically the cultural sector here in theater. So, uh, you know, at its core, I, I might be, you know, naive and idealistic here, but theaters are community centers, right, and should be serving, right, all of their community, which includes um, people with disabilities, right, so um, so the best way that I've found to do that is to, again, programmatic access, right, which is something that TFA is, it's a, it's a program, right, that enables for community to show up, you know, and as Alejandro said, Queen's Theatre is not the most accessible place, but because we said, you know, because we shot up a flare into the sky and said, you know, there's a place for you here. People are making that effort. TFA is a national program, right? So people have been showing up from all over the country coming to Queen's Theatre. And now that we've gone virtual because of the pandemic, our last two years, we're about to start our fourth year, um, you know, just next week, uh, and everything is going to be remote and on Zoom, that that kind of obliterates all these kind of structural, geographic, economic barriers, right? And again, these are things that remote learning remote virtual access is again something that disabled people have been asking for for decades you know and we've all been figuring this out together but and i hope it's something that remains right and that we retain um, because of those access needs and because it has ushered in whole new audiences and given access to people who regardless of disability or not can now see work and art and participate in all levels you know from across the country and the united states
2: I miss the theater, but I'm literally part of that programmatic access now, because my job will be as an audio describer to describe what's happening during the classes to a subset of the students who are blind and visually impaired. I'm going to be part of a team of three doing that. So I've literally become part of the programmatic access and I couldn't be happier to do that because audio description is something that I do for my work, among other things. So I'm really happy about that.
0: What are among the performances that you've put on as a result of Theater for All, Greg?
1: Yeah, so we did, um, well, Alejandro actually participated in one Uh, last year was the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. uh, And with another organization here in the city, Um, we did a co-production, a virtual co-production of a play called uh, Emily Driver's Great Race Through Time and Space. Um, which is about a young girl who travels through the space-time continuum to fight the forces of ableism, right? Um, uh, and Alejandra, I think you read the lead for that, right? You read Emily on that? Yeah. No? Oh, I'm sorry. You read the, the activist track. Right. right? That was
2: uh, Jesse Yates, who was the lead. No, that's
1: right. Forgive me. Uh,
2: but even before the pandemic and we went virtual, uh, we had the TFA plays, mm-hmm. which uh, was work submitted by disabled playwrights and performed. And I got to participate in that as well. Right. So, yeah.
1: GFA Short Plays uh, is a kind of a t- 10 minute plays, right? Again, it was a national program. We asked uh, for national submissions um, for plays that either dealt with, uh, that had disabled characters or were written by disabled playwrights from all across the country. And I think we got close to 200 submissions. And we've, uh, while we were in person, we have um, performed three or four cycles of those. Um, and again, again, it, it gets people in the door, provides creative opportunities, it provides, again, Alejandra started as an actor and now she is, you know, employed as an audio describer, right, um, through the program and is doing that uh, elsewhere, um, you know, in her, in her life and throughout her career. And that's what, again, Queen's Theatre is taking the track that once you're with us, you're with us, you're part of our community, you're part of our ensemble. So we're creating Pipeline you know, and not only um, artistic opportunities, but also employment opportunities uh, administratively. So my I'm I'm director of inclusion, but my first intro to Queen's Theatre was as an artist and artistic director I brought one of uh, my company's projects to the theatre to perform. And that's how I built the relationship with Queen's Theatre and eventually got the role that I'm in now. So it's, again, it's been a really, it, it can be done, you know, but again, I think what Queen's Theatre is really doing is creating the model and trying to shine a, shine a light on that. Um, and we, we've got four years, we will have in the next, you know, two, three weeks, have four years of experience under our belt. Um, and I think now is really becoming the time to really kind of Disseminate what we've done, reflect, and kind of build—you know—to use a phrase of our time—build back better. You know, uh, really kind of figure out what can we make better, what have we done well, where have we fallen short, you know, and how can we improve and make sure that we are again serving everybody as much as possible and getting that work out to the wider field because again if we can say this is possible we've made every mistake in the book you know but we've also succeeded and here you can learn from us and we want to share that knowledge fully with as many people as possible to help mitigate again all these kind of barriers and obstructions to participation in the field and the cultural sector i think we're you know we're doing that it's taking time but um Again, we, we are we are committed to that time. We're committed to that exploration and that work.
0: Over this past year, many theaters, of course, including yours, shifted to virtual programming, which increased access. Now, as the cultural sector reopens, what could be learned from this experience? And what, if any, are your concerns?
1: Well, again, I, I think I, uh, I alluded to this maybe a little bit earlier, but again, losing this access, right, That um, uh, that kind of transitioning to the virtual realm has allowed people I don't want uh, to lose that Um, I think that is essential so if there are hybrid models or or ways to record shows um, you know and and share those out uh, which people don't do wholesale um, that would be great Um, again a, kind of out of uh, great necessity, people developed a whole subset of skills and greater capacities to, right, to make theater available to people and to keep people working. Um, so again, just to sort of throw all of that aside or push all of that aside, I think we would be losing something. I like, guess we all love theater. We want to be back in the same space because theater is an art of flesh and blood. Like that's what makes it different from film and television. You know, you get to actually be together, breathe the same air, experience the same, be in community with that audience and with others. So that, and that is what is magical about theater. Um, but um, again, it's not just the theater, but I mean, we've proven that remote work is totally viable and can be done um, for not only people with disabilities, but anybody um, you know, uh, regardless of your your background, your job, your uh, employment capabilities. So, can theater adopt that? There's also been a great reckoning in theater over this time, as there has been for a larger society, about more inclusion of of all people, people of color, different communities. You know, so uh, are we going to retain that? Are people going to are in- cultural institutions and theaters really going to examine their practices and start to? Um, uh disassemble or reimagine these structures that have been uh harmful or exclusive of communities that that want to be part of their communities and participate
2: yeah i think we can definitely be at the forefront of that um because tfa has been reaching so many more people the productions that we've worked on over this pandemic year have reached so many more people Um, And while everybody has been online and on Zoom, not everybody is doing the kind of work we're doing to make virtual space additionally accessible. And the idea that theater is much more the community than the space itself has been really brought home to us. Um, I know that I participate in other projects and I'm an arts administrator for a completely different project. And I sort of took the feeling of our community to that work, because uh, our work taught me that I can be an audio describer and an arts administrator and an audiobook narrator, and I can approach it with a sort of care and reverence that we are trying to do, learning to do, getting better at doing. And then maybe look a little more critically at other Zoom events, at other theaters, at other performance projects that aren't doing what we are at least trying to do. So I think that spirit, whether we get it right every time or not, but the evolution of that spirit, I think, is going to continue to keep folks who are hungry for this kind of work applying in droves, wanting to come to our plays, you know. Um, And you're right about Queen's Theatre being a family, because I've been involved in several ways over the, since 2018. Uh, I forget the name of the show, but uh, another alumnus from our cohort year was starring on the stage before the pandemic, and that was amazing, but I just don't remember the name of the show. Um,
1: Barefoot in the Park.
2: That's right, and that was that was a full-scale production that was completely separate from the Theatre for All program and well attended and just, you know, TFA pride was that one all around. I hope the kind of work that we're trying to create and foster can at least be a model for folks who are wondering if they can do similar things or change how they do things now.
0: Alejandra, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Greg, thank you very much. Thank you, George, it's been a pleasure. You can learn more about Queen's Theatre and its Theatre For All program at queenstheater.org. I'm George Boracchi. My thanks to producer Madison Colombo. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thank you so much for listening.